Podcast with your hosts, Gene Steinberg and David Bietti. You know, occasionally we get letters from our listeners where they suggest, you know what, we should get on guests whom we know are crackpots or frauds or charlatans and expose them. Of course, we've done that a couple of times. Yeah. <laughs> and sometimes the reaction is favorable. They say, yeah, right on, you know, like the Worldwide Rustling Federation. But we're not the WWF. We're actually trying to discover actual, real, authentic information about this. It's one thing for someone to be wrong. It's another thing for someone to be a fraud. Well, at the same time, we get emails from people who say, all you guys do is complain and moan and groan about the state of paranormal research. And... Uh you know, we're New Yorkers. We're, we're supposed to complain. We're professionals at complaining. And you know what? There's a lot to complain about. And we're trying to do what we can, Gene. But, you know, we're just two guys who speak about this stuff because we're interested in the topic. And, you know, in my case, I have all these weird experiences I'm trying to understand. But at the same time, Gene, being critical and being self-critical is really the only way to achieve any awareness. That's just the way things work. People forget, I think, that in order to get anywhere in life, you have to be critical of things. You have to be self-aware and self-critical, and I think that that's something that we try to do here. And uh, the bottom line is that ultimately, we're doing the show out of a passion. And when you are passionate about something, you tend to be opinionated about it, especially, again, if you're a native New Yorker, which we both are. That's just the way uh, that's the way we are. And, and after listening to the other shows in this realm, I think uh, this is a necessary thing. I think if other people talking about this were a little more self-critical, were a little more critical in general, maybe they wouldn't come off as sounding just so silly. You know, and of, and of course, people write and go, well, you're, you're complaining about other shows. Well, I've listened to some of these other shows and it's, you know, for the most part. And, and look, there are exceptions to this like anything else, but. For the most part, you have people getting on their soapboxes and yelling and screaming because they like to hear the sound of their own voices, which I guess pretty much describes us, right? If the network comes calling and they say, here's a big load of money. Now we want you to get on there. We want you to get ratings. Now, we don't care what you do because they don't. They only care about the ratings and the advertising and how many people you piss off. You piss off too many people, you become like Don Imus, you get fired. But he'll get back on the air again because he, you know, he's been in the business 40 years and he's been fired before. But that's how it is. They don't care whether you're there to express a point of view. They care only about the bucks. Well, but given that logic, how can they justify... You know, the big 800-pound gorilla in this room where you've got a, a host that's just boring. He's just terrible. Does that show get the big ratings it gets because it's the only show in the middle of the night? I'm guessing so. I, I'd be willing to guess that if we were up against that show on an equal basis, on a level playing field, I'd like to think we would command a wider audience. But you know what, Gene? That's the problem. If we're looking at the American audience, I think the American audience is largely dumbed down. If we were an international show, if we were doing this show in other languages, if this show is in South America, I think we would do real well. I think when we have on A.J. Gavard and we talk with him and the level of discourse we have with him and the level of interest, for example, on the part of the South American population in general about these topics, I think we would do really well because I think for the most part, like you go to South America or you go to Europe, there's a much more sober level of discourse about this stuff overseas. And... It's a sad statement about American society today. But, you know, this is the, the state of our society is one that 
we're really all guilty of bringing ourselves to. We're, none of us are innocent in this. The fact that American television is so insanely dumbed down, the fact that in this country, this polarization that I keep bringing up on the show, it, it, it has infected every level of social interaction. And it's, it's sad because what has essentially happened is that we are distracted and we are polarized in a divisive way that keeps us from in any way coming together against what are, I suspect, the true enemies of our security and the true threats that we face as a nation, which are, which are significant at this point. And we're actually recording this session right now on September 11th. It is Tuesday, September 11th, while you and I are actually taping this. And um, it, it's a very unpleasant reminder this day of how little we've accomplished since that terrible day six years ago and what terrible things have been done in the name of that day where I think if some of the people who died that day knew what was happening in their names, they'd be spinning in their graves. I know one person for sure who's spinning in his grave at this stuff. And it's just, it's, it's terrible, but yet there is the level of discourse in this country. Either, for example, in the case of UFOs, either you're a believer or you're a debunker. And it's like, well, can't we have some middle ground here? Can't we talk about, yes, this idea that there is something going on, but we don't know what it is? Every time we talk to somebody on the show who says, I know what's going on. I have the answers. You know, obviously, uh, all of my defense mechanisms come up because every time we hear that, what we find out is someone has a vested interest that they're protecting. Someone has an agenda. And ultimately, these people are not necessarily being productive in the process of discovery of what is really going on, whether it's UFOs, whether it's these ghostly presences that we, that we seem to be interacting with at some level, whether it's these you know, wacky beings that have no explanation. I mean, actually, I have to tell you, after my disclosure when we had Brad Steiger on, about my experiences with this shapeshifter being. I got a couple of very supportive emails. I actually haven't gotten the huge deluge of negative emails because I think I'm convinced at this point, Gene, that only three people listen to the show. <laughs> well, you mean your girlfriend listens. She's one. Jeff Ritzman and you. Actually, you don't listen, so that makes it... Uh, well, you know what? No, maybe it's four. Actually, I do listen. Because remember, I listen because I'm doing the post-production editing. So I hear the show basically twice when we do it, and then again when I'm doing the post-production. So I hear it in very great detail. You may listen to it, I don't know. Certainly your girlfriend listens. Certainly Jeff Ritzman listens. That's four listeners. Hey, I'm happy. I'm happy as long as the people that we know and love listen to the show. Who cares? No, there, and no we have other people active I'm on the kidding. forums who, who I know listen. No, no, I know, I know. But, you know, it's... Ultimately, it's sad that we don't reach as many people, perhaps, as a toast-to-toast, -toast, which tells me something ultimately about not only uh, who their listeners are, but where our society's at. You know, did, are there enough people that want to talk about this in a thoughtful way? I mean, we had one post on the forums from a guy who said, I've listened to all your episodes. I haven't learned anything. And uh, it makes me wonder. I mean, is it true? Uh, do we have we talked about nothing on this show that's taken anybody to a place of slightly deeper understanding? I, I hope we had. I mean, I'd like to think we have, but maybe we haven't. I don't know. It, I guess when you get into enough self-analysis, you get to the point where you don't 
look at things clearly. You can't really be objective about yourself because uh, talking about or, or, or self-awareness is a subjective topic, isn't it? Very much so. And when it comes to self-awareness, a lot of the time you're going to be wrong. By the way, today we are going to spend a very fascinating session with another new guest. And he's actually a friend and colleague of Frank Warren. And that's mm-hmm. Scott Ramsey. And we're going to talk about not Roswell, but Aztec. Aztec, New Mexico. Another New Mexico event. Ah. Ah, Which he's investigating in very great detail. There was also a recent convention or session in Charleston, West Virginia, to talk about the Flatwoods Monster case. Remember that Mm -hmm. from the 1950s? That's, I think, the only real case that Gray Barker, the late Gray Barker, investigated seriously. This is before he just became a prankster, you know. Is that Chippy Barker's cousin? I don't know. Yeah, yeah, Chippy Barker. Okay. The, guy who in, who in, the guy who invented dog biscuits, Chippy Barker. Coming up next to the PowerCast, Scott Ramsey, I think. I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. We have William Burns, the publisher of UFO Magazine, on hand, and he has a special offer for listeners of the PowerCast. Hi, Gene Dave. Good to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Here's our special offer. Because we love Gene and Dave and the Paracast, we are offering six issues for the price of five. Normally, when you send me a subscription for $19.95, a new subscription, you get five issues. It's our introductory offer. But just for our friends on the Paracast and friends of Gene and Dave, we're going to throw in an extra issue and give you six issues for the price of five. That's six issues for $19.99. Just for you. How do we take advantage of this offer? There are three ways to take advantage of it. One is, if you're online, go to www.ufomag.com. Hit subscribe when you come to the PayPal page. Just put in under item, Paracast Offer, 1995, and I will know that you get six issues for the price of five, or you could send your check or money order to UFO Magazine, Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California. That's Ray spelled R-E-Y, California, 90295. Put down your name and your address, and on your name and address label, put down Paracast offer. You can also put it on your check for 1995 in your money order. I will know exactly what it means because I'm psychic, and I will credit you with six issues instead of five for that 1995. Or you can call me at 1-888-UFO. 6242, leave me a message, I will call you back, or if I'm in the office, I'll pick up and just say, hi, I'm a friend of Jeans and Dave's, I listen to the Paracast, here's my special offer, and I will take your name and address and your credit card and send you six issues for the price of five, and that's how you do it. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You never know what's going to happen next. 
Scott Ramsey, you were down in Charleston, West Virginia at a convention or a meeting regarding, I guess, focusing on the Flatwoods case from back in the 1950s. Now, I guess we can make you our on-site reporter here for the PowerCast, but the first question I would have is why is anyone still interested in that case? Um, Frank uh, Ficino has done some incredibly good research in it. I don't know. I think he's got 15, 16 years uh, of research in it. Uh, I don't think anybody really did the in-depth research that he did. Barker did some research back in the course of the 60s and 70s until his death. And Frank really took the uh, the bull by the horns, and he went in and picked, you know, picked through the old military records, declassified some Air Force records, found some very good uh, eyewitnesses, and uh, he's done a, an exemplary job of, of really putting a, a, a wonderful case together. Stan jumped in, Stan Friedman jumped in, and gave him some good guidance and some good help. And the net result is now he's got two books out and a very well-done documentary that's shown at the, the Charleston Flatwoods Monster Festival, I think that was the official title. Well, the one thing, of course, with Flatwoods is I often say that was probably the first and last serious case Gray Barker really investigated before he got involved in doing his silliness with Jim Mosley. But he spent an awful lot of time with that. And I did see Frank's presentation over at the Crash Retrieval Conference in Las Vegas last year. But this year, where well, you had, what, Stanton Friedman over there? and Right. Stan spoke both Friday and Saturday night. He did a different topic uh, each night. And after Stan's uh, talk, uh, then they showed the new documentary. The one you saw at Crash Retrievals was... Uh, for lack of a better word, not being disrespectful to Frank, but a rough draft of the final one that they put together. The new one has animations and graphics, and it's it's extremely well done. Correct me if I'm wrong. As I recall from what Frank was saying when I saw his presentation last year, now, instead of being so much a monster or a creature, but some kind of robotic device is what his That's theory correct. was. Yes. Mm -hmm. Well, apparently the events that took place that night in 52, the military picked up several objects coming in from the East Coast and they scrambled what everybody thought was one fighter group. It turns out now from his records, three different fighter groups went up to intercept these objects that the military tried to pawn off as meteors. And there was, uh, I don't want to use the word dogfight, but there was an encounter where the military did fire on these objects. The one that Frank is concentrating on, obviously, is the one that landed in Flatwoods. It wasn't a crash. It was a controlled landing. And by the time the residents got up on the hill, this 10 to 12-foot robotic-type creature apparently had come out of the craft to speculation here, work on it, fix it, do whatever. And, of course, when the local kids and the mothers and the cousins saw it, they retreated back, and sometime later the object took off. But, yeah, it was more of a robotic, uh, could have had a live creature inside whatever it was, but, but yeah, it was more of a robotic-type uh, entity. And I want to tell you, fans of Doctor Who, this was not a Dalek. Okay, this was a real thing. David, you had a question. Well, I, you know, when people look at the pictures, the renditions of what this thing supposedly looked like, it doesn't really look like anything else we've ever seen in the history of UFO sightings, does it? I mean, there's, there's no comparable visual element to this one that I've ever read about. It, it's extremely unusual. Yeah, it's a unique one in its own right. Well, that being the case, and given that you've got something that is... 
usually the exact opposite of what we read about. Usually we read about beings that are, you know, four feet tall. This thing, 10 feet, 11 feet, 12 feet tall. What do we make out of this? What, what possible explanation can something like this have in terms of the context of what we normally think about as a, as a UFO sighting? I mean, how does this relate to anything else we've ever heard of? I, I think it's unique in its own right. It's, it's really hard to, to answer that one. I, I think it would be an, been very interesting if they had had a closer look of what was inside it. Obviously, the face that they saw could have been an alien inside this. Now, was it shielding from radiation, shielding from because it was in a hostile environment? Who knows? But it is a very unique case compared to other sightings over the years. All right. So that being the case, do we put this into the basket of UFO sightings that are high strangeness that seem to tell us that we understand a lot less about the origin of these things than we think we do. Because, again, this doesn't match anything else we've ever seen. It's a standalone episode. To what end do we attribute human psychology towards the perception of this thing being some enormous uh, creature? What do we know about the people who actually witnessed this? Well, Freddie May, who didn't make it to this year's event, uh, he had some health issues, so he, he had to stay home. They, the people of Flatwoods, from what Frank tells me, and my wife and I stayed there at least four to five times a year. I still have family back in Pittsburgh. Hmm. So we leave Mooresville, North Carolina, in the evening after work, and we drive as far as Flatwoods and spend the night, and then the next morning we only have an hour and a half, hour and 40-minute drive to Pittsburgh. And because... Of our encounter meeting Frank and his work, we've you know made it a point to definitely always stay in Flatwoods. The people in that town are, are good people. They were then, according to Frank, they are today. It's a very small town. It says, welcome to Flatwoods on both sides of the sign, to give you an idea. <laughs> but it's, it's, a, it's a quaint, hard, you know, middle-class, blue-collar town. I've never seen anything in Frank's research that, you know, it's not the moonshine capital of West Virginia by any means. The Air Force, of course, wrote it off by saying what they encountered was a meteor and the 12-foot object was a barn owl, so they've got that going for them. A barn owl? Yeah, that's what the Air Force wrote. I, th I think it made it into Project Blue Book. As a matter of fact, I know it did. Oh, boy. So yeah. now we have 12-foot tall barn owls terrorizing West Virginia in 1952. Well, so we have to look at, I guess, the image of this thing and... Compare it with the imagery people would have been exposed to, for example, in alien movies at the time. Mm -hmm. You know that were coming out then. I mean, there were there were there were a lot of strange movies, and I'm trying to think of the timeline for Invaders from Mars, for example. The day the Earth stood still. You know, they were all in that same time frame. Right. I think that was like I think that was 1951, uh, the day the Earth stood still, where this happened in the well. What was 52. the exact date? 52. All right. September 12, 52. Yeah. All right. So that being the case, Scott, I mean, can we say that maybe, just maybe, there was a situation here where there were psychological projections of people's fear that maybe the things that were being reported were the product of active imaginations? I mean, were there, were there any uh, trace evidence investigations that were, were underway. Did anybody find landing marks? Did anybody find burned vegetation? Was there anything oh, physical? Well, can oh, you yeah. tell us a little bit about that? 
Well, I feel kind of bad. I'm not the expert. Just just knowing Frank for the last couple of years and, and reviewing some of his work this past weekend, there was a, a strange odor that children and the adults all spelled when they got up on top of the hill. They said it, it reminded them of ozone or a burned picture tube. And the reporters the next day at, at daylight noticed that there was landing tracks, looked like literally like tracks, like sleigh tracks going through the field. There was an oily substance that was sprayed around the crash site as though something had leaked out of whatever this object was. Uh, Frank has recovered these oily, fragmented samples after all these years that they found down in the field. Now, what they are, we don't know. Frank hasn't had them analyzed yet. One interesting thing that Frank told Suzanne and I was a lot of the people that witnessed the crash have died of cancer. Unfortunately, Freddie May has been diagnosed with cancer. That happened Tuesday, right before the uh, the symposium or the festival. Right. Luckily mm -hmm. for Freddie, I think they've caught whatever his ailment is at a very early stage, so everybody's expecting a full recovery. Mm -hmm. But there, uh, mainstream media, I don't think applies to the town of Flatwoods back in that time frame. This is before the interstate went through the town. It was almost a town looking at the old maps. You really couldn't get there from here. It's not like Wheeling or Charleston where you have a, a bigger city influence or even Weirton for that matter. It is a very, very small town. What kind of turnout was there for this event, Scott? I mean, how many people showed up for this? Not what Larry Bailey, the promoter, wanted. But <laughs> it never is way, it gotta, ever though with UFO yeah. type conventions or paranormal conventions very seldom. Yeah, it never is. The uh, I got to give Larry Bailey a lot of credit. He and his family and his sons did a fantastic job putting on that weekend. Unfortunately, Marshall University was playing University of West Virginia down in Huntington, West Virginia, which is just west of Charleston. I think a lot of people that would have liked to have attended, obviously, were going to be at a football game where those two teams hadn't played each other in 92 years, literally. Uh, and I think that definitely had an impact. But I think Friday night, my wife and I counted about 150. Mm -hmm. And we thought Friday night would be the light night of the two. And then Saturday, it was probably in the 125, 130. Mm. Maybe, and that might be high. It, it, we were both counting from different angles in the dark. But uh, I think Larry was, the, the theater holds something like 650 or 700 people. It's a huge, so huge theater like, downtown. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a wonderful facility. But aside from the the light turnout, it was extremely well organized. It was Larry Bailey's first UFO type of conference. We got there Friday afternoon at four o'clock, just right before it started, about an hour and a half, two hours before it started. And all the rooms were in order. The facilities that they put us up that were beautiful, and the uh, again the theater was just most amazing place I've ever seen a conference put up at. Hmm. I'll tell you what, we're going to have Frank on the show sometime in the future. I know that I had talked to him last year, and I think this would be something to explore, to bring that case back to life and see what's going on. But coming up next, speaking of cases, of course, we hear so much about Roswell, but what does Aztec New Mexico mean to people? We'll find out shortly. If you're looking for a better way to present or collaborate during your conference calls, your solution is simple. Web conferencing with GoToMeeting. During your call, everyone logs on to GoToMeeting.com. 
and your computer screen shows up on their computer screens. It's like you're all in the same room. GoToMeeting is perfect for sales or product demos, training, or real-time collaboration. Plus, you're not charged per minute like other providers. You can meet as often as you want for as long as you need. With GoToMeeting, you can meet with anyone, anywhere, without leaving your office. You'll not only save time, but money, too. See for yourself. Try GoToMeeting free for 45 days. Just visit GoToMeeting.com forward slash podcast. That's GoToMeeting.com forward slash podcast. Try GoToMeeting today. You are looking at this with Jesus and your David Pianney. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney, and the man who's been doing lots of research into that subject, Scott Ramsey, joins us today. And when I think of Aztec, I think of Roswell, and I think before we move to the specifics and nuts and bolts of your investigation, tell our listeners, what's the difference? Oh, about eight months and uh, five or six hundred miles. Uh, well, that's, it's a big world. That's pretty small, it's I guess. It's a big state. Yeah. <laughs> Roswell was early July 1947. Roswell was March 25th, 1948. Roswell sits down in the southeastern section of the state of New Mexico, and Aztec is in the northwest quarter up in the Four Corners area. All right, so let's now go into what happened, when it happened, and what we've begun to learn about it. All right. Aztec was a little unique as we've been researching it. This is my 20th year in researching Aztec. Aztec came down as a basically intact craft from all the accounts we get. wasn't coming down in pieces or whatever happened in Roswell where it was debris field in chunks. The other difference between Aztec and Roswell, this was an extremely large craft. By all accounts, all the witnesses we've talked to over the years, about 100 feet in diameter. It landed out on a mesa, approximately 12 miles northeast of the town of Aztec in a very, very rough desert-like terrain, probably 5 o'clock in the morning, 4.30, 5 o'clock, somewhere in that time frame. The craft uh, was first discovered by uh, oil field workers for what was then the El Paso Natural Gas Company, approximately four to five hours before the military arrived and cordoned off the area and separately and interviewed all the people that were at the crash site. And as best as we can tell, approximately a two-week recovery operation. The terrain out in Heart Canyon today is still extremely rugged. We were talking with some people this past week in Charleston that said in 1995 they went out to the crash site in a Ford Mustang. doesn't sound like a big deal to you have ever been out in that terrain. Some of those ruts are two and three feet deep. Ooh. And how the oil field workers kind of pounced on them and said, are you lost and what the heck are you doing out in this terrain in that kind of vehicle? And we got a kind of a chuckle out of that because I've been out there in four-wheel drive vehicles and been stuck for hours. So very rough terrain in 1948, still very rough terrain today. Hart Canyon Road is a pretty historical road. It used to be the only connection between the Four Corners area up through Durango. It's got a lot of interesting history. It's now basically used for oil field purposes. It was the original stagecoach run uh, connecting Durango to the Aztec Flora Vista Farmington area back at the uh, late 1800s and turn of the century. 
And the Aztec crash sort of takes many different directions from there. Well, when you refer to it as a crash, Scott, we have that on one side, but then the accounts are that this thing came down intact. So yeah. did it crash or did it land? No, it was a very soft and probably controlled landing. I use the word Aztec crash because that's how it's been known from, from day one. Right. I addressed that in our new book that will be out hopefully in 2007. It was more of a landing and probably a controlled landing. Well, if it's a controlled landing, then how does that then jive up with the idea that there were dead creatures inside of the craft? That, that's not real clear. Yeah, that is uh, confusing, and that's an interesting part of all the people that we've interviewed at the time. Nobody saw the craft actually come down, to the, to the best of our knowledge. There was a police officer from Cuba, New Mexico, that kind of played a game for a couple of weeks, a cat and mouse chasing uh, a UFO up what was back then Highway 444, which is now Highway 550. He would lose it from time to time, and on that particular night, he lost it as he came into Bloomfield, which is just south of Aztec, and... Uh, next time he saw it was going out toward Hard Canyon, and his next recollection was seeing it sitting up on top of a mesa where the oil field work is founded. So, no, it was, it was a, I guess you would say, a controlled landing, whether it was done by remote, whether there was one surviving alien that had the energy to, to maneuver it on there, we'll never know. But there were 14 to 16 alleged bodies recovered from the craft. Uh, what do we have in terms of firsthand or eyewitnesses? What do we have in terms of any kind of verifiable firsthand accounts? That are still alive or that we talked to over the years? Let's do both. None that are still alive. And over the years, we interviewed Doug Nolan, we interviewed Ken Farley, and the family of the police officers that were there. We had two different police officers at the site. So the police officers themselves were not interviewed, but you interviewed their families. Right. They had died in the 60s. What did these uh, family members convey to you? Well, let me let me put the whole night in perspective for you. Actually, let's go back two weeks before the Aztec incident happened. We had a farm, or a, well, yeah, part-time farmer, part-time police officer. Andy Andrews was from Farmington. He was State Highway Patrol. His jurisdiction from Farmington traveling in a southeast direction would take him just about to Cuba, New Mexico every night. We had a part-time police officer in Cuba, New Mexico, Manuel Sabadal. He would go just about anywhere he wanted in the jurisdiction of Cuba. The town was so poor they didn't really even have a police car. They had a city car that he would use for highway patrol. Andy would come down at nights and he and Manuel would meet for cake and ice cream or coffee or whatever was on their appetite that night. And then they would separate and go on their own patrol. For about two weeks leading up to the crash, as best as we can piece together, Andy Andrews and Manuel Savadal were seeing this object, a huge structured craft, go in and out of the canyons between Cuba and Farmington. This is documented where Andy Andrews requests to the Air Force in Albuquerque at Kirkland Air Force Base, we need you to send people up here. You won't believe what we're seeing. This is all well documented. It's very well spelled out in my book. The Air Force sends up Dr. Lincoln La Paz and two other high-ranking Air Force personnel. They spend about two or three days in Cuba, disappear out in the desert, come back and basically hold a town meeting and hold out some rocks and say, this is what you've been seeing. These are meteors. 
Now, of course, Dr. Lincoln La Paz was well known for his green orbs in the in the 40s and 50s in New Mexico, researching those. He was a very brilliant astronomer, by the way. Well, at the town meeting, the first person that was very emotional was Andy Andrews. It jumps up and screams at La Paz and says, how dare you insult our intelligence? We know what meteors are. We see them all the time in the clear skies of New Mexico. Mm -hmm. We're seeing huge structured craft that are floating around the skies at night. La Paz says basically, no, this is, we were out in the desert. We saw lights in the sky too, and there are meteors, and here's the, the, the remains of it. Now we go up about two weeks after that. Andy Andrews, to the best of our research, and Manuel Salvador are seeing these craft that night. The, the whole area was inundated with UFO reports in 48. We don't know what happens to Andy Andrews that night. He doesn't appear to end up at the crash site. He ends up chasing something to the western side of Farmington, out toward the Indian Reservation. Manuel, when he gets separated from Andy, goes to the east side up through Bloomfield and is at the crash site basically at five or quarter to five in the morning. At that time, we have Doug Noland and Bill Ferguson are going to work. Doug Noland is with El Paso Oil Company. He's 19 years of age. He's going over in a company truck to pick up Bill Ferguson, his boss. He gets to Fergie's house, and Ferguson says, we're not going to where you thought we were going to go. We've got to get out to Hart Canyon Road. There's a brush fire near one of our drip tanks. Directly below the crash site today, or landing site, was a huge area of holding tanks and drip tanks that were owned by the El Paso Oil Company. They recently moved those within the last seven or eight years. They get out to the Hart Canyon Road near the drip tanks, go up on the Mesa. Other oil field workers have been out there that night, said, hey, hold up, don't worry, the fire's not an issue. It's on top of the Mesa, the oil tanks are below the Mesa, but you really need to see what's laying out here on the western side of the Mesa. At that point, they go out and they see this large lenticular disc, as Doug Nolan put it to me in my interview with him before he died. And that's basically the, the, the night of March 25th, 1948. Now, I wanted to just mention something just parenthetically, and that is we know that years later, they actually, in this case, it was a year or two later, that book came out, Behind the Flying Saucers, by the late Frank Scully, a former gossip columnist, and of course very mm -hmm. controversial because a lot of people said this is ridiculous, and he was talking about crash UFOs in the Southwest. Was he talking mm -hmm. about Roswell, Aztec, or did the legends converge over the years? Mm. Good question. I don't know. Uh, Frank actually wrote two books concerning the, uh, the Aztec incident. One was Behind the Flying Saucers. It came out in 1950. And a few years later, he wrote In Armor Bright. And it was a book basically on many subjects, but there was a lot of information given, follow-up information about the Aztec crash, about Silas Newton, Leo Gepauer. That book is commonly overlooked when talking to people in ufology and even the skeptics and, skeptics and debunkers. They look at you funny and go, what other book? Exactly, um, exactly. It, it doesn't mm -hmm. register on my CPU either. <laughs> Do a of course, very little does register on my CPU, ladies and gentlemen. But, <laughs> yeah, that's another story. Yeah, Frank broke the story in the book Behind Flying Saucers. That gets very interesting. Frank was introduced to a gentleman by the name of Silas Newton. Silas Newton was a multi-millionaire oil, basically a wildcatter for the lack of a better term. Uh, Frank Scully uses the term he 
in one year never made more or lost more than $25 million. And that's a good, good funny joke if you know anybody that's been in the oil business, especially out in the Four Corners area. Silas relayed to Frank Scully this amazing story that he was approached by eight to nine scientists that told him an amazing story about the recovery of a UFO in Aztec, New Mexico. Suzanne, my wife, and I have worked on that part of the story for almost four years. That's the longest, most heavily researched part of our book. Who were the scientists that allegedly broke the story to Silas, who then sat down with Frank Scully? Now, the common perception in the 1950s was that the original Scully book was a hoax or he was hoaxed. That mm -hmm. There was nothing exactly. authentic about it. And as a matter of fact, I recall Frank Scully writing. This is, shows you where my memory goes. I remember things 40, 50 years ago, but not today. Seriously, Frank <laughs> Scully was actually in touch at that time with Jim Mosley when he was publishing Saucer News as a fairly mm -hmm. serious publication. And he wrote a story disputing the people who said the book was not based on facts. I think they claimed that Silas Newton was not just a wildcat, but a complete fraud. Oh, and he, sure. he had some bouts with the law, and I go into great detail about that in the book, too. There, there's a couple of misconceptions uh, about Silas Newton. Yes, they did get in a little bit of trouble over an investor. One investor out of 33 over an oil, basically, oh, yeah, you know how the, the oil business goes, you don't use your own money to dig an oil well. You find investors. Mm -hmm. Everybody puts in, use an example, $10,000. You have 30 investors, you have $300,000 of working capital. In 1948 through the 50s, that was a fortune to start drilling wells. You could drill many, many wells with $300,000. You keep drilling until the money runs out, and hopefully one of the wells hits. Where he had a problem was he oversold his technology by, and maybe he didn't. I, I, I have two plays of thinking on this. What he did was he presented his potential investors with a doodle bug contraption. However, in the trial, and I have all the transcripts of the trial, all 289 pages that the FBI would give me on his, his criminal file and just background file, for lack of a better description, one of the investors thought that this new technology Silas was claiming was too good to be true. And when they hadn't hit any oil at that time, the investor went to the FBI and said, I think I've been conned by this guy. And that started the whole legal issue with Silas Newton and, I want to stress, one of the 33 investors. The other 32 were quite satisfied. At the end of the day, Silas was charged with uh, a comp running a confidence game and uh, fined $50,000. Out of that 50000 was, of course, the original, I believe it was eighteen, is what the courts finally agreed that the investor had put in, $18,000 plus court cost. The interesting thing on that, if you look at the sequence of events, it looks like he was put on a witch hunt. By the way, that oil field ended up being one of the best producing oil wells, and if the investor had kept his mouth shut and been more patient for about 18 months, he'd be a very wealthy man today. Huh. But neither here nor there. Assuming the guy's still alive. Fake Magazine provides true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. 
To receive your free issue of Fate magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. Hey there, listeners. Have you ever thought about hosting your website? You know where you can actually host your blog or your web page? Well, I'll tell you where to go. Host I can. Host I can. And as a matter of fact, they provide all our hosting, too, for this site. And guess what? Their price starts at only $7 a month. How could you go wrong? It's reliability and speed speaks for itself. And that's why we're able to provide you with this radio show that you're listening to right now. It's Host I Can. Give them a try. You'll be glad you did. To learn more about Host I Can, go to this website, techbroadcasting.com. That's techbroadcasting.com slash host. Techbroadcasting.com slash host. And you'll learn more about Host I Can. Another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. tell our listeners you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietany. We're talking to Scott Ramsey, who instead of looking at Roswell, has looked at the Aztec UFO case. And right now we're talking about this book, Behind the Flying Saucers, by the late Frank Scully, dating back to the 1950s. And we're correcting, hopefully, a few misconceptions about whether that book was based on fact or fiction. David, did you have a follow-up? Well, there's a bunch of stuff I'm really curious about with this. Um, when you say these guys were seeing this craft for two weeks, uh, in and out throughout these canyons, does the description of that craft match what supposedly came down? That's hard to say without having talked to Andy Andrews or Manuel Salvador or any of the, the locals. There are some people in Cuba that vaguely remember uh, the, the whole UFO flap, to say the least. Right. They the the one thing uh, they all recall was the size of it. It was quote unquote huge, is the description I hear. Uh, the Roswell craft, I think, twenty thirty feet in diameter. That's kind of what everybody has come up with after all these years of, of looking at it. Yeah. And a hundred foot diameter. We go out to the crash site out in Aztec when they have the symposium, and we'll do some crash site tours. We'll mark off what a hundred foot diameter craft looks like. And that is really huge. It's a pretty good size. Yeah, 18 yeah, foot yeah. tall. I mean, we're not talking about, you know, little, the ones you see the blurry pictures of it. This was quite sizable. I've heard other accounts saying that they were two to 300 feet in diameter. People over near Chalma and Tia Amaria in that same time frame. Right. It, it's hard to judge the size of something when it's going through the air. Uh, but when it's laying on a mesa, it's not difficult at all. Okay. Then we have reports of uh, anywhere from 12 to 14 beings 
inside of this thing, and then we read that this estimates of the size of these beings is anywhere from two to four feet. Uh, do we have any details about what these beings look like? The witnesses I talked to only saw the two through the portholes. There were some mirrored-type portholes on the craft, mm-hmm. and they were slumped over, and they they couldn't be exact. They were small, four foot or less, but they couldn't give me any details of two and a half, three feet. Right. I'm working with a witness's family right now out of Colorado. Suzanne and I actually flew out there just to, to meet with family and friends and talk to them. As we go through that and define what we have, I'll probably have more of a more accurate description. Right. So there's no physical description beyond a height and the idea that they were charred deep brown, as I'm reading. Yes, that is correct. Whether that was due to something that happened on board the craft, decompression, yeah, the, the same consistent story is repeated over the years that one of the portholes had a a hole in it like a projectile something it hit it about the size of a quarter okay so the idea then would be that that would have created some kind of a depressurization or an escape of whatever atmosphere was in that and let oxygen and air in and that potentially created some situation where these things were were burned in some way your guess is as good as mine yeah I, I don't know I don't think if we had everybody that was there at the crash site, anybody could determine what what caused it to come down. Right. It didn't appear to have. It, it did not land on any type of landing gear. It was sort of laying on its belly at an angle on the crash site. I've always uh, asked witnesses that I've talked to draw what you saw and compare the drawings. I could not do that with Doug Nolan. I've done that with other people whose relatives claim to have been there, and it's always pretty consistent. Well, and of course we could assume that that consistency could be tied to a couple of things. The idea that the story was repeated enough times over the years that certain elements just fell into place. I mean, what I guess what I'm trying to get at here is that it, it, a lot of this is sort of vague. And it's kind of interesting to contrast it with the um, the Roswell episode where we have a lot of detail, a tremendous amount of detail that we don't know whether or not it's valid or not or true. But there's a huge amount of detail where here, if we have a craft that's intact and we have, you know, 12 to 14 beings, we'd almost expect to hear more substantial detail. And given that you're the premier researcher looking into this, I'm curious about what your feelings are about the fact that there isn't a lot of detail here. What do you attribute that to? Well, I think Aztec had a lot of disadvantages. The Air Force didn't put a press release out and put it on the front page of dozens and dozens of major newspapers either. (laughs) It didn't have the the coverage and and all the the mystique about it. It had, at the time, Frank Scully's book. Uh, Then Bill Steinman came out with his book on it. And I've talked to Bill as recently as last month. He's he's had the same problems over the year I I have, and that's finding people. I mean, the best we can account, there were 16 people total that witnessed this craft sitting on a mesa. Okay, so in talking to their families, did you hear the kinds of stories we've heard out of Roswell where these families were threatened by the military, were told that if they said anything that they would potentially be harmed? Did you find any corroborating kinds of stories? I've never, I've never had a family member tell us that anybody threatened the families. I have had 
Doug Nolan, for example, said that uh, they were sworn to secrecy for life and threatened if they talked about it. Mm -hmm. Ken Farley tells the same story. As a matter of fact, Doug was 19 at the time. I think Ken was, I'd have to look at my notes, 20 or 21. And just did a very short bout in the service, didn't quite make it through, had some disciplinary problems, and was, a, as his own admission, a young cocky kid that didn't like authority and basically told the military personnel, I'm not in the service, didn't make it with you guys, you can't tell me what to do, and he got hit with the butt of a gun. And hmm. so he said at that point, after I picked myself up off the ground, I realized that these guys aren't playing around, and I maybe ought to shut up and quit running my young mouth and listen to what they have to say. But I never had a family come back and say, we, the family, were threatened. Hmm. We had an interesting mix of people at the crash site. We've got two police officers one local, one from Cuba. Ken Farley was not from that area. He and his friends stood at the western side of the of the craft. Doug Norland and Bill Ferguson and the other oil field workers knew the one police officer, didn't know who the other one was. Everyone agrees to a middle or older couple, Mr. and Mrs. Knight, that were well-known ranchers in that area that leased land to run their cattle on. Mr. and Mrs. Knight were the ones that were smart enough to tell everybody to stay away from it and quit climbing on it because the young kids, 19, 20, 21-year-olds, they, all they wanted to do is cautiously get close to it, then jump up and, and look around, and the Knights were saying, quit it, get off the thing. So what I found interesting about Aztec after all these years is the stories remain consistent, and that, to me, gives it some credibility. Plus, some of the people that were there, whether I mention their names in my book or not, I'm coming up with the same problem that Bill Steinman has. Nobody wants their name affiliated with it. Mm -hmm. These people weren't, I hate to say this, the town drunks. These people grew up to be very important people in the community. Doug Nolan was very successful. He ended up in Vegas at a, a mining assay company. So he went from a 19-year-old kid in the oil fields to a very successful guy. So we weren't dealing with people looking for a reason to to talk. I mean, Doug kept this a secret for a lot of years. He didn't break the story until late in the 90s to uh, an individual that contacted me. Why did he finally come out about it? He was dying. As a matter of fact, from the time my last interview with him, Suzanne and I were supposed to fly out to Vegas to meet him in person, take some pictures, see if one-on-one -on -one he could remember anything else. He had a series of strokes, seven or nine strokes. And as we literally were getting ready to leave and fly out of Charlotte, uh, we got word that uh, Doug passed away. Ken Farley, my interview with Ken, and I've taken some flack for this, too. A lot of people say, hey, all you're getting is old people's deathbed confessions. Uh, they were delirious. You know, da -da 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 -da. that's not the case. Uh, Doug was very slow and slurred in his speech from all of his strokes. He was very coherent, could remember most of the names of the people were there, that were there, could remember what day it was, what the weather was like. He said, these are things that you're never going to forget. These are things that changed my life forever. Ken Farley, we interviewed him in Phoenix before he died. I've been really criticized heavily that, well, Doug was on oxygen the day he interviewed him. Well, yeah, he was, but he drove 40 minutes to the interview. It wasn't like he was completely incapacitated. Yeah. Well, it wasn't like we were at the nursing home holding his hand and, and getting the confession from him. But this is kind of the same problem people underwent in learning about Roswell, which is, of course, that a lot of the people that you came to interview were getting on in years. And even though they were still alive, 
you, you wonder how well they got all the information. That's the other thing, too. There's a theory on the part of some skeptics about this that Aztec and Roswell remembrances got merged and munged over the years, and did it become difficult for you to separate the two? Yeah, you've got to constantly be... You know, I, I've got several methods that I use when, and, and I get calls all the time, and I welcome them. I don't think anybody's ever called to purposely throw me off guard or to deceive me. I think people call sometimes with Uncle Joe or Uncle Henry's story, and when we check it out, it's maybe Uncle Joe's confusing it with something else. Right. But the easiest way for me to verify when I get these phone calls and they say, look, uh, my Uncle Tom or Uncle Henry is telling me that he was an Aztec. We go back and we pull the real estate records. We pull the tax records. We you know, pull the water bills, the utilities. That's just basic investigation 101 to, to find out who was really there and who wasn't there. Sure, sure. All right. Well, then I guess people who start to look into this case, Scott, then come up with another potentially problematic connection. Uh, Bill Simon, in his work, talks about the members of MJ-12, Mm-hmm. than getting involved in this. People like uh, uh, Oppenheimer and Bush and the the list of typical suspects of the MJ-12 situation that this group of scientists then all of a sudden were on the scene. Now, how do we reconcile this with a lot of what's come out recently, which really calls most of the MJ-12 documentation to question? I mean, what, what, in your research, what did you come up with in terms of these scientists who supposedly then show up on the scene? I really haven't done much research in that at all. Uh, I'm a firm believer that some of the majestic documents, as Stan Friedman has pointed out, and he has from the beginning, uh, were suspect. But I think there's a, a, a good group of majestic documents that nobody can, I, I like the old saying, prove to me they are fake. Instead of speculating, prove prove that they're fake. Instead of instead of telling me Aztec didn't happen, prove to me it didn't happen. I like to turn it around a little bit. Mm-hmm. But as far as Aztec and any personal research on Majestic 12, I have I have not done what Stan and Steinman and other people have done and tried to clump it with Aztec. There is no mention of Aztec in any of the Majestic 12 documents. There's Landing Zone 1 and Landing Zone 2. So if the Majestic documents are all factual, then maybe Aztec is just a figment of somebody's imagination. It's another way to look at it. I don't believe that, but I'm sure somebody, a skeptic, could say that. Well, let's differentiate between skeptic and debunker here. Uh, yeah, that's true. Thank you. That's really well. It's really important, and and this is yeah. something that you know we catch a lot of flack on the Paracast, Scott, for being skeptical. I think being skeptical is a very important aspect of looking at this. When one wants to debunk things, that's a whole different deal. Obviously, then mm-hmm. you know people go in and go, well, this is all nonsense, and UFOs aren't real, and la da la da la. Well, yeah, sure. Those are debunkers who, you know, don't want to have their worldview turned upside down or even challenged in any way. I think that, you know, in trying to trying to understand any of this stuff, it's so critical to try to get some kind of even keel. It, no, no pun intended there with John Keel reference, but <laughs> um, any kind of even keel. And when you look at Steinman's work, sort of connecting the supposed MJ-12 scientists into this. One starts to wonder, well, that almost sounds like an, a disinformation thing where people, uh, you know, and this is, we see this all the time in looking into 
particular cases in this field where uh, somebody pees in the pool, and that basically ruins everything. How do you you hack away the stuff that's noise to get to actual reality or signal? That's that's the key issue here. Now, obviously, if you're talking to witnesses and their families, that's real valuable. And at that point, we we look to see. You know, did these people receive the same treatment that the Roswell families? That's why I asked about the issues of threats. That's a that's a recurring theme where people see something and they're pulled aside and they're told, you know, we'll hurt your family if you go and you talk about this. We we will we will bring harm to you and yours. And so when we, we you know we find a situation where supposedly a craft comes down with a dozen beings. You'd have to think that if the military was on top of it, then yeah, they're going to threaten people. They, there's a lot of motivation there to keep people quiet, and that's why I asked you that question. I think that's really important to try to, you know, establish at the time, given that this would have happened so close to the Roswell episode. Presumably, there was some kind of a protocol for how to deal with this. And so, do we see those same supposed protocols being applied to what happened at Aztec? Yeah, that's that's a. I don't know. You know, I, like I said before, and, I, and it's it's difficult with Roswell. Like I said, when you have Walter Hall putting out on the the wire service the whole army airfield uh, in possession of craft or whatever it was, flying saucer. I think eight months later, eight and a half months later, by the time Roswell had kind of calmed down, and Aztec now happens. I'm speculating, of course. I'm really speculating. I would think after the embarrassment of what happened at Roswell with the Army putting out the news release, there was a very stringent protocol put together after that. And the the only natural thing would also would be, in my opinion, a recovery operation, a recovery team. I mean, maybe not one, but several. If these things are coming down or being shot down, or in my opinion, they're being shot down, I want to get also, have, by the way, because we have a, a just a moment for the first half of the show. I want to get into this shot down stuff, and I know David wants to pursue that, but just continue for a moment, then we'll have to do our hourly break. Okay, fine. But I, I think there would be a very stringent protocol after after Roswell that you know, guys, if this happens again, or we know it's going to happen again, or the probability it's going to happen again. We need to have a system of checks and balances on how we do it in the future going forward. You mentioned before a book, Scott. Is this book out yet? No, I've been working. I'm embarrassed to tell you this. I've been working on it for 12 years. I married Suzanne Ninos. She's now Suzanne Ramsey. She's from the Four Corners area. Uh, we'll be married four years next month. And uh, one of our goals two years ago was let's get the book done. But I have a terrible habit of getting the book just about done. The phone rings. I get a new lead. I jump on an airplane, go out, come back, and tell Suzanne, we've got to rewrite this chapter. And I'm just my own worst enemy with the book. But she's been a big help with it. It should be out this year. It'll probably be self-published on, you know, publish-on-demand type of thing. A lot of hard work went into it. A lot of people, the Frank Warrens, the Dennis Balthasers, the Stan Friedmans that have offered help over the years. It's uh, a book of sort of a cast of thousands, so to speak. Well, we look forward to the book, and certainly when it's out, we'll have you on again. We're going to have Scott Ramsey continue this discussion of the seldom-discussed Aztec UFO landing crash, whatever, in New Mexico on the other side of the Paracast. Wow. 
want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and gene in data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. On part two of the PowerCast, Scott Ramsey, who was working on a book about the Aztec, New Mexico, UFO encounter, crash, retrieval, whatever, sometimes confused with Roswell, but they are separated by seven or eight months. Okay, Scott, you were telling me before we got into this part of the interview that you went into this quest hoping to disprove this, and obviously something happened along the way, so maybe our listeners would understand the entire situation better if you told us this audit. See, what got you interested, and at what point did you say, you know what, this may be real? Well, I, it started on a business trip out to Farmington. It was actually an impromptu scheduled visit. <laughs> I, I got stuck in the Denver airport, and I had a customer that I'd talked to by phone but had never met, and he was down in Farmington. So I called him up and said, hey, I, I can't get back to Charlotte due to weather, but I can get to Farmington on a commuter. So I went down and we talked and weather in Charlotte was bad and I just rearranged my trip so I could come back Monday. And it was that on that trip that I heard he employs a lot of Navajo Indians from the reservation. And uh, two were talking about what they were going to do that weekend and one said he was going to go out and scout out a good place to hunt mule deer out in Hart Canyon. And he asked the other one, you want to join? He said, where are you going to be? And he said, I'll, you know, probably out by the old crash site. Huh. In fact, my ears kind of perked up and I... I was a firm believer in UFOs since I was a kid, but I, you know, I did crash site. And I said, what crash site? And he said, oh, you know, the old town story says that UFO crashed out in Hart Canyon. I had no idea where Aztec was. I had no idea where Hart Canyon was. I barely knew how to get from the airport to the Holiday Inn to my customer. And they gave me some rough directions how to get out there. And I had a rental car the next day. I went out and tried to locate it. Like I said before, that terrain is so difficult. I didn't. I bailed out, came back to the hotel, and flew back to Charlotte and just started doing my own research. The next trip, I was going out there about then every six weeks after that visit. He became a very good customer, still are to this day. And I found myself going out there about every six weeks and being a conscientious traveler and doing the Saturday night stay. I would uh, have the weekends kind of go out and, you know, kind of try to dig this story up. I didn't believe it. I, I thought the first thing, too, these people were confusing it back then with Roswell. But, you know, Roswell, a big, yeah. piece of, big piece of real estate between Roswell and, and Aztec. And my first, one of my first stops was the downtown museum in Aztec. And I talked to the curator at the time, and she said that uh, if you pulled the town of Aztec, half would tell you it happened, half would tell you it was nothing but a hoax. So, yeah, the Aztec Museum, even to this day, doesn't have a whole lot on it. They have some old archival newspapers you can go through. They do talk about the brush fire that was out there that, that night. Brush fires are rather common out there. They have a lot of lightning strikes. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know about Frank Scully's book until a friend of mine said, hey, there was a book written on what you're, you're looking at or looking into. Then one by one, it was a very, very slow process. Again, it was like what Bill Steinman went through. People out there don't want to talk. People that have moved to Aztec and one generation or another live there, like my in-laws, because they don't like the big city. They like the quiet town life. 
and it's just not the the topic of discussion at night at the dinner table. But eventually I found people that said, well, you really need to talk to this person. He ran cattle out there at the time. You need to talk to this person. He leased land out there at the time. It's all mostly BLM land, Bureau of Land Management. But at one point, I started looking at who people were directing me to. And like I said earlier, these weren't you know, the town drunks, to, for lack of a better word. These were pretty responsible people in the community. And, of course, you had people that were very high up in the community that were also telling me it didn't happen, but nobody could prove to me it didn't happen. So I had to look at the people that were telling the story. Hmm. The other interesting thing is when I finally found what is known to be the landing site today, it doesn't look like this anymore, although we keep saying we're going to restore it back that way. As you went up on the mesa, the trees were all splayed in the northeast direction. These are small cottonwood, pinya trees, that type of thing. Now that the Aztec Public Library has an event there, they have to get a BLM uh, permit to go cross on the land. And what they made us do, when I say us, I'm, I'm a roaming member, board member of the Aztec Public Library, they made us go out and clear all the dead trees and stack them behind where the plaque is today. So there would be limited liability of people tripping over all the dead trees. Luckily, Randy Barnes and I in the late 80s photographed the site before all the, tree, the dead trees got moved. They look like driftwood trees. You know, they're old, they're weathered. And if you just stood there back in the late 80s, and Steinman addressed this in his book, something of tremendous size came plowing through there. Now, we've never done a carbon date on the, on, I don't even know if you can do carbon dating back 59 years, but the whole point is something, something had done some damage on top of that basin. Anybody ever take some soil samples and have them analyzed from that area? We did that, and we've done the, yeah, there's a lot of carbon up there, but there's also, there's an area up there where the, the Indians and Navajos used to fire pottery back, you know, 150 years ago. Hmm. So you have a lot of runoff and you have a lot of contamination from the, there's a big fire pit up there. And, of course, there's, you know, charred wood from the, the night of the, the big brush fire. That was a pretty huge brush fire. That was actually east about 100 yards of where the craft came down. The, the fire that night on the Mesa had nothing to do with the UFO. And then there's the concrete slab, which has drawn attention over the years. There's a road cut in going up to the crash site. And when I say it does not appear on any BLM maps unless one was printed here in the last few months, as you go down Hart Canyon Road, you go through a very steep left-hand bend. It's called the Arkansas Loop or the Arkansas Bend, depending on what oil field workers you talk to. As you get to the top of the Arkansas Loop, the road straightens back out going due north toward Durango. There's a mystery road that's been cut off going to the left, going west. At the end of that road, it forms a cul-de-sac. Now, imagine we're out in the middle of absolute nowhere. At the end of that cul-de-sac is a 39 by 39 inch concrete slab that goes about eight to nine inches deep. There's no reason for that slab to be there. I've had the skeptics tell me, well, that's a compressor pad. Well, my brother-in-law is in the oil business out there, and he and all his co-workers will tell you there's never been a compressor pad for that size. They're huge. They're big compressors out there. Furthermore, you'd never put a compressor on the top of a mesa because you drill for oil at the bottom of the mesa, not at the top. Why would you go through 80 feet of bedrock? We took the concrete slab, and we had a story behind it, too. Uh, I interviewed a gentleman that I address in my book. I'm not going to mention his name on the air. 
who I found going through Air Force reports, he, in that time frame, was getting a lot of the good UFO sighting reports from radar bases and surrounding bases in the area. He actually even got a few reports from Los Alamos. We tracked him down and found him. He was still alive. And uh, I flew out one weekend to meet with him. I told him, I'm writing a book on your old unit, and I'd like you to go over some declassified records the Air Force gave me. And we got to talking, and I said, what do you know about the, the Aztec crash? And he admitted to me that uh, he had worked on it purely from a paperwork standpoint, had not been at the recovery site. I know that sounds kind of crazy. It makes sense when you read it in the book. He told me the recovery was delayed a few days because after they cut a road into the area, they had trouble with one of the cranes, the silty soil. They couldn't get good footing for one of the cranes. He said, when you're up there, look for a poured footer or some type of concrete they had to bring in and pour. Hmm. In 2001, I believe, maybe 2000, we had a company go out and did a core sample of that concrete slab. My dear friend, my, my late friend Carl Flott once told me, it's a well cap, and if you drill through it, you'll blow yourself to kingdom come. The day we drilled the core, Carl wouldn't join us. He stayed back at the hotel. We drilled through it. Nobody died. We took the core sample. It's now at a laboratory being analyzed. All rebar manufactured after a certain date is time-stamped with a date manufacture. This rebar post-dates or predates 1948. We know rebar lays in inventory for years. Now the test we have to do is what they call a leaching test on the concrete where they bombard it with water and ultraviolet light and we'll get within six months of the actual date it was poured. If it fits the 1948 time frame, it's obviously physical evidence of the crash. If it doesn't, we'll chuck it out as an unknown because we have no idea why it would be out in the middle of nowhere. Well, yeah, I mean, it's very interesting. I, I don't know if you can make the jump that it's physical evidence of the crash. It's physical evidence that concrete was poured where there'd be no reason to pour it, potentially in 1948. Right. I mean, that, right. That's, that's right. It, um, it, it adds credibility to our ex-Air Force intel guy that says, I wasn't there, but here's what to look for. How close was that concrete to the crash site? About 100 to 125 yards. It, without having been at the crash site, and hopefully we'll get you guys out there someday, there is typical Mesa. It's a stepped-tiered Mesa. Mm -hmm. Out where the crash or the craft allegedly came to rest, you then have to walk up another hill going northeast to get out toward the main road. There would have been two ways to get an object out of there, whether it was a UFO, an airplane, whatever. One would be come down the face of the Mesa where the oil drip tanks were. Unfortunately, back then, those oil drip tanks were there, so that would have made that impossible. Today, you could do it. The tanks are gone. The other option you had, or, or the only alternative you had, was to take it up another set of hills up to where the cul-de-sac and the road is cut and start hauling it out from there on a road that had already been there for, you know, a hundred and some years. Hmm. So it made sense. So as pieces of the puzzle started to come together, I quickly shed my skepticism and said, wait a minute, there's more to this than just an old wives' tale of a, an incident that happened in Aztec. Okay, so here's a question that just came to my mind. Let's say uh, you have the military out there. They've got to remove this thing. They pour this concrete down so they can get the crane situated on it. They can lift this thing out. 
wouldn't the military then remove this concrete? Wouldn't this be considered evidence? Wouldn't they would have thought that someone like yourself would have said, hey, wait, what is this doing here? I'm not so sure if the military had one go down in that area today, they'd remove the concrete slab. You're in an absolute no man's land. I'm sure they figured that could be explained away, and I'm sure that uh, Randy found it. Bill Steinman mentioned it in his book. Uh, kind of uh, Bill mentions, you know, what's with this concrete slab? Bill wrote that, he and Wendell wrote that book in the late 80s. It was 90s before we went out there looking for it. It was covered up. Now, was it covered up just to normal erosion? Probably. There's a big runoff area out there. Randy Barnes went out there with a piece of rebar and just tapped through the sand until he heard a clump, clump, and spent a half a day digging it out to expose it. Mm-hmm. Probably been more trouble than it was worth. Whoever brought, whoever poured it, brought in Portland-type cement and used the normal natural aggregate of rock out there to make their 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 concrete mix. They didn't bring in gravel. They used what rock was already out there. They used stuff that was already out there. So the idea was that it would be temporary. Exactly. Um, However, whoever poured it, we did have some engineering studies done on it. Today, it'll withstand 30,000 PSI. That's today, 59 and a half years later. The thing is built with three-quarter, five-eighths rebar, and in between the rebar, stainless steel pencil rod. Okay, let's so think. Somebody compared- was putting lots of weight on this. This isn't a, a, a two-ton compressor. You are about to enter another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a sinister land of secret rites, passwords, initiations, and handshakes, where the truth remains hidden and history is controlled by an elite group of mysterious men. Imagine, if you will, that I'm holding a book in my hands that explains this secret history and that the name of this book is Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. Here is described centuries of dark dealing, lies, murder, mayhem, and cover-ups in the pursuit of unimaginable money and power. My name is Brad Steiger, and the stories you are about to read may have actually happened at the signpost up ahead. Your next stop, Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. This is The Paracast, with your hosts, Gene Steinberg and David Bietti. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. Scott Ramsey joins us to talk about the Aztec New Mexico crash. No, ladies and gentlemen, if you're just tuning in, not Roswell, Aztec. Go ahead, please, David. Well, the, this brings up a really critical point, uh, Scott. Then, Can you say then with a degree of certainty that this thing was unusual in terms of the amount of engineering and strength that was put into it? compared to what you would have had in any typical oil field operation? Is oh, it that absolutely. Okay. Absolutely, beyond a shadow of a doubt. The company that has the, the, the core sample, mm-hmm. they're the largest concrete laboratory in the world. They have several operations around the United States. They do hundreds of concrete samples through their lab every day. Two people in the entire company know that the, what the end potential 
use of this lab was. Right. To the technicians doing the test on it, it's just another core sample from some runway somewhere. Right. They do bunkers for the military. They do runways for the military. They do runways for the FAA, highways, bridges. The engineers, when we first brought it to them, were absolutely shocked it was so heavily reinforced. And today, 30,000 PSI. Well, a piece I, of concrete that's been aging out in the desert on and off over the years under ultraviolet light from the sun, that's pretty good. Well, yeah, I guess, you know, for those of us who aren't engineers dealing with concrete construction, I, I see, it, it sounds like an impressive number. What does it really mean? I'm not sure how to even parse that number. How does that compare to the types of uh, structural integrity of building concrete? I mean, what are we talking about here? Ten times that much. Really? Ten, ten, this is ten times greater. Yeah, three 3,000 pounds per square inch. That's a lot of loading. Okay. Does that mean, then, that they had some idea that this object was so dense or massive, massive not in terms of the size, massive in terms of density and weight, that they would have needed this? Or, you know, why would they have over-engineered it to that extent? That, that question was asked in my interview when I was talking to the gentleman, and it was probably the, the craft itself from all what he remembers people talking about was very light. It was right. the size of the crane they had to bring in to get this object stabilized. And at one point, he said that he thought he was getting daily intel reports on the operation. His job, and by the way, he was down at the uh, at Roswell Army Airfield, but at that time, it was the name was changed, and I have got a mental block on what its name was back then. His job was to keep records of the people that were involved in the recovery. Mm-hmm. His claim was, my job was to keep approximately 200 personnel records at its peak of who was there, when they arrived, when they left, and to dummy their personnel records. So if they ever claim later that, oh, yeah, the Aztec recovery, sure, I was there, their, their personnel file would show, no, they weren't. They were at MacDill Air Force Base for that week or that two-week period. I interviewed him twice, the first time for many, many hours, and I was astounded if he is telling me the truth in-depth intelligence went into this. Yeah, you said you're not going to mention his name on the air. Did you mention his name in the book? I will. I'm waiting for something to happen. And Frank Warren is well aware who the gentleman is. You guys right. know Frank. Yeah. Now, I'm just going to throw a question out to you here. You feel confident that this guy had access, the kind of access he claims he had? Mm-hmm. I sure do. This guy's not Clifford Stone, right? No, oh, I just not. I think it's important no. to ask. I mean, this is like, no. you know, no. look, I spoke to Clifford on the phone. Very nice man. Yes. I don't believe what he says. I mean, it's just I just I think Clifford Stone makes claims that just don't they don't pan out. They don't hold up. And again, I think it's important that when we talk about these things, we differentiate people who are very pleasant, very nice mm. from people who are potentially not being completely straightforward with us. I mean, you know, right. you can you can be very nice and very kind and very wonderful, and not even I won't say not be telling the truth, just basically uh, be indulging in a delusion. So mm -hmm. you you had interactions with this guy. You have reason to feel that he's being genuine, that he's being sincere and objective in what he's telling you about his involvement in dealing with this paperwork. Absolutely not. Not that this means anything, but again, mm -hmm. I think it's important. It's important from my standpoint. I had a pretty good career in the Air Force, came out, started a very, very successful business 
on the East Coast. Could be the size of it. It could be a publicly traded company. Has no reason to lie to me. Told me I'm the only person he's told this story to other than his wife when she was dying of cancer. Hmm. And and said, you know, I, I, I don't know what to do. You asked me a question, and you have all my, not all of his records, but his unit records. And I said, here's reference to you getting UFO reports. Why? Well, I was in intelligence. And I said, this is the exact time frame of history I'm looking at. I'm just trying to use common logic. There's no sure. reason he'd lie to me. Or he'd say, hey, I don't know anything about that. I got a few intel reports on UFOs. I could care less. So, so I guess yeah. you, have to, you have to look at the character and caliber of person you're talking to. Absolutely. You have to look at what the motivation is and what does he have to gain or what does he stand to lose. Mm -hmm. That's always really critical. Did he convey to you that he felt that he was in some danger of discussing this topic? No, that was never brought up, actually. It was never brought up. Uh, He gave me some very good examples, as I stated earlier, on personnel records. He said that it would not be unusual. They did fear people talking about it later on, even though, you know, military people. And he said that's why a lot of attention, Walker Airfield, by the way, is what name I was trying to remember. Right. That's what Roswell was called in 48. He said we would go as far as to take an individual that was working on the Aztec recovery, have him at another Air Force base, even put him in the infirmary for an afternoon because he sprained his ankle playing volleyball, just so we had a complete paper trail where if that individual ever spoke again or came out and said 10 years later, 15 years, whatever, absolutely nonsense. This person wasn't even near Aztec. He was, I used McDill because that was an example he gave me. He was in McDill Air Force Base during one afternoon playing volleyball. He sprained his ankle and was in their infirmary for a day, you know, just so they could easily discredit anybody that worked on the recovery. He also enlightened me. Yeah. That he said, you've got to get yourself out of just Air Force records. He said there were people there from the Fifth Army Corps. So this was not just an Air Force recovery. He said Army, Fifth Army group out of Colorado were also present at the recovery. I had oil field workers that did not witness anything as far as a disc in Hart Canyon in that time frame, but told me they tried to go out coming down from Durango, tried to access some oil fields, and they saw sentries on top of the hill and were turned away by military. They were told, we're just doing exercises out here. It's going to be a week or two. Didn't your boss let you know about this? And years later, they come up to me at the at the Aztec Symposium and said, hey, we didn't see the craft. We didn't see this. But about that time frame, there was a military presence out there. I had a Department of Wildlife. Two years ago, a gentleman come up to me at the at the Aztec and he said, I was Department of Wildlife. That was my jurisdiction. I was turned away by the military. All in about a week or two time frame. I just can't believe these people are all confusing it with Roswell. Well, you suppose at that point, you, you assume that if they're giving you that kind of specific information that they were at, at that, that area and were being turned away, that they wouldn't confuse your Roswell. I mean, that, that, that's pretty clear. What happened then? So uh, supposedly the craft is now lifted up. Taken what apart happened? in segments. Taken apart. Just- Taken apart. I've never had anybody been able to confirm or deny that because I never had anybody at the site other than the people that were there until the military showed up, all broken apart, talked to individually, and whisked away, told to get out of there. In Scully's book, he mentions the fact that the craft came apart. Now, keep in mind, a 100-foot diameter UFO, flying disc, even if it came apart in pie-shaped sections, it would still be an enormous task to get it out of there. 
Mm-hmm. Sure. Not impossible. Interesting thing, Suzanne and I just learned. We obviously I mentioned earlier we got a call a few months back uh, that we needed to get out to talk to some people that had some information on Aztec. And to to use Stan Friedman's term, it seems like we're always racing the undertaker, uh, especially when you're dealing with something that's happened that long ago. Yeah. And I missed a few very good opportunities to talk to people before they died. So now when the phone rings, we gamble the Visa and MasterCard and American Express card and go get on a flight and go see these people. Well, we were up in Colorado, and I we met with the families and talked with them, and then I went down and started doing some archival research on old newspapers and found out at the time of March of 1948, some of the world's largest heavy equipment was only 60 miles from the Aztec crash lake. They were building a new dam project up in Colorado. Hmm. And, and, that, and that, that, that description is right out of the paper. Some of the world's largest, heaviest equipment is in the state of Colorado. I'm um, making a big assumption here, yeah. but if somebody needed some big flatbed trucks, some low boys, some big cranes, the dam project was being done by the Army Corps of Engineers. It wouldn't have been that difficult to make a phone call and say, we have an emergency down here. It's on a need-to-know basis. We need your crane for two weeks. Mm-hmm. That assumption. But it's not like there isn't a large crane for 5,000 miles or 2,000 miles or whatever. I think most of you know that I love radio, and so I decide to look for the ultimate receiver for AM reception because I want outstanding AM reception day and night, especially night where it gets difficult. So I've discovered that C-Crane CC Radio Plus has earned the reputation of having the best AM reception, which is exactly what C-Crane intended when they designed this gem of a radio. Along with its legendary AM reception, it also has excellent FM reception, a weather band, TV audio, and the ability to run on batteries for, and listen to this, 250 hours. So whether you use it as your bedside radio in your kitchen or at work, the CC Radio Plus will give you the pleasure of clear AM reception. The radio is designed for the clarity of the human voice and the benefits of useful features like five memory buttons per band. They work just like memory buttons in your car, a sleep timer, an alarm clock so you can get up at the right time, and a weather alert that now works as an all-hazards alarm. You know what I want you to do? I want you to buy that radio, but also support this show by visiting techbroadcasting.com slash ccrane. That's techbroadcasting.com slash ccrane to order the CC Radio Plus for $164.95, and that includes free ground shipping and a free ccrane catalog. Place your order today. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, Send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast. With Jesus and the David Bailey. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney, and we're talking about a very fascinating tale 
a crash, retrieval, whatever, at Aztec, New Mexico, which, no, ladies and gentlemen, is not Roswell. It happened months later, hundreds and hundreds of miles away. Scott Ramsey is working on a book, and we hope that book will come out sometime this year. We'll kind of give him a little push there to try to work faster. Type faster, <laughs> Scott, okay? David. No, Gene, it's your turn. Oh, it's my turn. Okay. Yes, sir. So at this point, putting all these pieces together, you're becoming a believer yes, as opposed to a skeptic. And you feel that something really crashed there. The government knows about it. Now, do you think all the confusion over the years between Roswell and Aztec, do you think that maybe the government kind of fostered that kind of reaction? Or is it just because we're talking about two events in the same state that have superficial similarities? At least they involved an encounter with something from elsewhere. Well, I think there are more than two in that time frame that came down in New Mexico. It's hard to to come up with a, a reasonable guess on that, but I think that uh, there was confusion in people's minds back then, uh, when, especially when Scully's book came out. You know, Roswell wasn't known about that. Let's you know keep that kind of clear. Scully's book came out in '50, and I don't think the Roswell story broke. You know, we, we, of course, we had the newspaper articles in 1947, but then it just died. The weather bloom story took over and it died until Stan Friedman started investigating it. I believe that was 78, wasn't it? That was close enough, yes, yeah, something along that. Yeah, yeah, so you have 28 years, is my math right? 28 years that uh, the, the average person had knew nothing about Roswell. Well, and yet you have people talking about Aztec before the Roswell story broke. Hmm. Here's another question. So let's say, and the whole thing about the ship being disassembled at the site, that to me is probably the most outrageous part of the story. I have a hard time understanding how that would even be possible, how they could even figure out that this thing was built in segments and that somehow there'd be some way of disassembling it. That sounds like a gargantuan task. Uh, oh, I agree. I think it would be a, a huge task just taking uh, the disc out of there. Even in one piece. Right. Much now, it wouldn't be impossible. My, my father was probably one of the world experts on moving what they called high, wide shipments. And uh, my father's deceased now, but it, the, the company uh, that he was with, uh, that, that's all they did. And I wish he had lived up until the beginning of my research where I could have said, okay, Dad, here's a challenge. 100-foot disc on a mesa in New Mexico. How would you get it out of there using 1948 technology? But I did talk to his co-workers and some of the guys that worked for my dad, and they said, was it impossible? No. Could we have done it? Yes. You better have big, deep pockets. Hmm. Now, given, though, that it would have been a fairly large group of soldiers, military involved with this, have you ever been able to track down anybody who claims that they would have been part of that engineering effort? That Nobody that has ever been at the crash site. My gentleman from Walker Field is... That's my only military connection at this point. Am I tracking down some leads at this time? Yes, I am. Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, given that kind of a story, one would imagine that there'd be a cast of hundreds to choose from. And, and I know this, you know, some of the listeners might think, well, if that's the case, you know, isn't it possible that somebody that was involved in the Roswell episode would have come forward? And this is the problem we, we always run into in that it's very hard to find people in the military who will talk about this, though? And and you know we've had issues with uh, with Stephen Greer before, but certainly in the disclosure project, he was able to come up with a good number 
of what I consider to be credible military witnesses mm -hmm. that have confirmed aspects of a variety of different episodes. Uh, there are many questionable uh, uh, episodes where there are military people who have come forward and said, you know, I had some involvement in that. I don't suppose really at this point there's anybody who would fall into that category with the Aztec episode, is there? Well, we're, Frank and I are working on one right now. Okay. It's, so you have a lead. A, oh, it's, it's more than a lead. Uh, but with Aztec and Roswell, there's always a lot more going on behind the scenes than what, what is known publicly because it takes so long to either find records or find people or get records and confirm records. But, yeah, we have one right now that's very intriguing to both of us. It's a work in process. Can you give us any hints or details at all, Scott? Yeah, you've gone on Frank's website, haven't you? I His have. blog yeah. site? No, I think I have. I don't know about Gene because I'm not that man's keeper because he's too weird for me to be his keeper. <laughs> Speak for yourself, Go. my friend. Mm -hmm. Frank uh, Warren Blogspot. Scroll down on the right column, you'll see an article that was written by Virgil Riggs. Virgil and I have been communicating now for approximately four and a half years. Virgil was stationed in England at an Air Force base in the early 60s. Ironically, Virgil is from the Aztec area. Oh, there you go. Having heard about the Aztec crash as a kid and witnessing the Armada flyover in 1950, Virgil is now stationed in the Air Force in England. Uh, he has a little Morris Minor car to get around base on. His sister from the Four Corners area sends him an Aztec high school. Well, I forget what their logo is, the Screaming Eagles or whatever. They are. I forget the group. Anyway, he puts that decal on his little Morris Minor. Well, one of his superiors sees it one day and says, you from Aztec, New Mexico? And he said, yeah. He said, oh, I've been there. And, hmm. you know, back in this time frame, Aztec is, you know, this is a very small town today. It's a beautiful yeah. town. It's a tiny little town, 6,000 people. And that's including a lot of the county out in the, the hills. And Virgil's kind of intrigued and said, you've been to Aztec, the oil field worker? And he said, oh, no, i just been through there. Well, they get to know each other quite well. As a matter of fact, this gentleman stands up in Virgil's wedding, vice versa, uh, live next door to each other, the two newlyweds with their new wives. About two to three years into it, Virgil says, or he, he keeps talking about Aztec and one night when they're alone, he says, what, what, what in the world would you have been doing in Aztec? And he says, well, I was with the military. He said, have you ever heard of the UFO that went down outside Aztec? And Virgil said, yeah, as a kid. He said, I worked on the recovery on it. This guy told him that? Yeah, absolutely. Read, read the article. I, Virgil wrote me that in a letter form, and with Virgil's permission, we printed it on Frank's blog spot. And Virgil and I have become very good friends. I've uh, seen each other a couple times in the last few years and swapped information. Virgil is a pack rat and keeps everything, thank God. And he has the orders and the daily rosters where it lists both he and this other gentleman. So we're trying to find the other gentleman. We think he's still alive. Mm -hmm. Another person that made a uh, claim to have been there was the infamous scientist Otto Krauss. Does that name ring a bell with you? Otto Krauss, no. I'll give you a condensed version on that. We were trying to find Otto Krauss. He had made claims in the 60s and 70s out at White Sands to a few people that we know that one time the subject of ufology came up and he said that he had worked on the Aztec recovery. And we thought that was interesting. So we went down to Las Cruces, New Mexico, looking for him on a lead 
and uh, unfortunately we were looking in all the wrong places. We thought he was a paperclip scientist that came over after the war, and actually Otto Krauss had defected Germany about 44 or 43 and went through political asylum in Vienna, Austria, ended up in England, United States brought him over here. So as we were looking for him amongst the old retired paperclip scientists that knew nothing about him and didn't even want to talk about him, then we found out he wasn't paperclip and they actually were very resentful of the fact that he had left Germany on his own accord. But he had made that comment several times to people, different people that have contacted us and say, hey, when we work at the missile range, Krauss used to admit to us at night he worked on the Aztec crash. Hmm. So, unfortunately, Otto's passed away. His son's still alive, and uh, trying to actually work to get in touch with his son, and he with his son can shed some light on it. Huh. Boy, this uh, this one gets deeper and stranger and weirder by the moment. We, we haven't even scratched the surface, and I'm not kidding you. You know, there was something you raised earlier, and now we open up the can of worms. Shooting them down, shooting down UFOs. And you mm -hmm. mentioned that in passing in connection with Aztec. Let's go into that now. Now, we understand that maybe 40, 50, 60 years ago, they actually might have tried this. But I just wonder what would have happened if somebody shot back. Well, I think Frank uh, Ficino covers that very well in his new book. I was reading it till 2 o'clock this morning. I'm not going to rain on his parade, but uh, he does an excellent job with all the missing fighters that were scrambled to go up and this time intercept the UFOs head on. Don't come back with visuals. Don't come back with gun camera pictures. Bring them down. The orders were shoot them down. That's the name of his book. And Frank goes into great detail throughout the Air Force era, but particularly the, the year 1952, of how many jets were scrambled with the sole purpose of to shoot a UFO down and how many did not come back. Hmm. Andy Kistner, years earlier, the former state representative from New Mexico that helped on the Schiff investigation, he had done a similar study of between the year 47, 48 of Aztec, and into the 50s, how many aircraft in the southwest were scrambled to intercept UFOs, the most famous being the jet crash, the P-80 of uh, Carrizozo of 1947. If you haven't ever read anything about that, it's very good reading. Uh, Andy Kistner did some fantastic research on that. That was a P-80 before it became an F-80. It was a Pursuit 80, our first jet that was introduced into the Air Force, Army Air Corps back then was stationed in the town of Carrizozo, New Mexico, which is west and on the other side of the mountains of Roswell. The sole purpose that was there is it would get a jump on the UFOs that were buzzing over the 509th prior to the incident of early July 1947. Its orders were to shoot them down. So there were orders way before the 52 incident uh, over Washington about shooting them down. Looks like the Day of the Earth then. stood still in reality here, where in Day of the Earth stood still, they land on the lawn in this park, and they're firing on the spaceman as soon as he starts making a false move. Now, mm -hmm. that, that to me, I really worry about that. I worry about that because if all this stuff is real, and you hit one of these things, and one of them comes crashing down, and I can't think they're invulnerable. There's always a way to shoot anything down or at least cause some impact. What the heck is going to happen if they say, you know what, we're going to fight back? 
I think Frank will show you in his book that they did. Uh, yeah, a couple of different situations in 52 going back from 47 and 48. If you pull up the old maps and you look at how much of the airspace over New Mexico was restricted back then, you'll be shocked. Huge amount of it. I mean, the northern area, east of Aztec, you had, the, of course, the Alvado radar base. Back then, I've had people argue with me that it wasn't there in 48. We now have definitive proof that it was built in 46, but not at the location it's at now. 1950, it was turned over to the Air Force. You had Continental Divide. You had Moriarty. Those three radar bases were there for, for one reason. That was to protect Los Alamos from an attack from the Soviets, an mm -hmm. air attack from the Soviets. By 57, they were pretty much rendered useless because of the new Dewline radar that we had set up coming over the North Pole. Well, of course, had, in that case there, Scott, we probably believe these were Soviet craft, Soviet aircraft, not that they were coming here from elsewhere. Before we go elsewhere... For 58 years, fate has provided true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest in all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. To receive your complimentary Fate magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's one 800 728 2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. She came to Earth to conquer our planet. He traveled to the future to conquer her heart. Experience the adventure of a lifetime. Attack, Attack of the, the Rockoids. The critics are raving about Attack of the Rockoids. One reviewer writes, the father and son writing team of Gene and Grayson Steinberg have written a marvelous, fast-paced story of interstellar warfare and star-crossed love. The battle scenes are so descriptive you can see the spaceships explode and be consumed by gigantic balls of flame. I enjoyed this story and the authors say there is more to come about the characters and the future world of the Rockoids. Fans of Star Wars and Star Trek will enjoy this story and look forward to many more adventures of Ray and Xanther. That's Attack of the Rockoids. Order your copy direct from Amazon Books or check out a sample chapter and get a special discount on your copy direct from www.rockoids.com. That's www.rockoids.com. Attack of the Rockoids in the grand and science fiction tradition. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. You're in the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We're talking to Scott Ramsey, who's currently and has been for a number of years working on a book covering the Aztec New Mexico case. We hope it will be out shortly. And for the next 18, 19, or 20 minutes, we're going to continue this discussion. Go ahead, Scott. No, the, uh, the airspace in those areas, you had Sandia National Labs, you had Kirkland Air Force Base, you had Los Alamos. You had the, uh, the, the 509th group, uh, Walker Field, Roswell Army Airfield, depending on the time frame, what it was called. 
White Sands uh, missile range. You got a lot of things in New Mexico. <laughs> First of all, would probably be a magnet for a visitor from outer space wanting to see what we're doing. You know, we're testing rockets, we're testing radar, we're testing aircraft. You know, it was the test body of our defense system after World War II, even prior to the end of World War II. I don't think an object while talking to pilots in, in that time frame you just didn't go wandering through the the different airspaces of new mexico unless you were going to get or escorted out of the area or told by radio you better get the hell out of here we're going to bring you down especially east of aztec it wasn't like flying around montana or north carolina or pennsylvania back then so i think the shoot them down orders would be way more in effect in that time frame than the rest of the country just and I firmly a, believe in Aztec's case that was a forced issue. However it was brought down, it was brought down. Just as a, as a corollary here, Scott, we have Aztec, New Mexico, and if we look at this on Google Earth, what we do find is that it's surrounded by what appears to be a whole lot of nothing. But we do have the Aztec ruins there. And mm -hmm. so we, we, we do have the Aztec Indians had obviously a, a pretty significant presence in the area. Do we find that there's any anecdotal corroborating stories about these types of things in the area if we, uh, if we dig into the, 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 the history of the area? Yeah. For, first of all, the Aztec ruins were, were misnamed. The Aztecs to anybody's best guess, never made it that far north. Well, that's what I'm those wondering. Are, and, yeah. yeah, those are actually um, Anasazi ruins, the visiting ones. That's what the other Indian tribes would call them, the visiting ones. They had the huge uh, city just south of Aztec. If you do a Google search and just run your finger down Highway 550 out of Aztec, you'll find Chaco Canyon. That was That's a beautiful place. The petroglyphs today out in Largo Canyon, Chaco Canyon, wherever, there are objects that look like flying disks in the petroglyphs. So whether they've been coming out to that area for a long time, I don't know. Now, but or was you, there something else being seen in the night skies that the Indians wanted to record in their petroglyphs, their form of a newspaper back then? Right. Anybody's best guess. Well, but you said that these Indians were called the visit, that their name meant the visiting ones? Yes. Anasafi in ancient Navajo, and there's, you know, the Indian culture, there's no written history, it's all oral history. Mm -hmm. Some would tell you Anasasi means the ancient ones. If you go back to ancient Navajo, it is the visiting ones. They were very nomadic people that, well, because of the weather patterns, everybody up out there was pretty nomadic, but they were a very large culture, and they expanded from about Interstate 40 going out toward Gallup all the way up into right on the Colorado border. Hmm. That's an odd That's an odd thing. Just, mm -hmm. You know, I mean, look, in trying to investigate anything like this, you look at all of the information that's available. It does appear that the modern UFO era began in the 40s. I mean, we have the Battle of L.A. episode in, what, 1942, but then everything really seems to, to get heated up after after basically the beginning of the nuclear age. And be, given that so much of the United States nuclear effort was based out of New Mexico, it's uh, it's not surprising then. Or that's not, it, not that it's not surprising, it's unusual that we then see this kind of a, a connection between the history of nuclear technology and the appearance of these things. And also, though, 
the idea that I think when people think about crashes of these craft, it, there's always this idea that, well, it's odd that these things seem to crash with some frequency. Gee, if this is advanced technology and these are advanced beings, why in the heck do they crash so much? Yeah, and we, and we've that's heard that's it. it's 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 a weird thing. I mean, we've heard that you know, well, maybe it was radar that was screwing up the systems. Of these things, I think a lot of us find that a little hard to believe. Well, I've never thrown that theory out. We went in search of the radar bases based on Bill Steinman's mention of them in his book. And I'll tell you a funny story about that. A friend of mine, Scott Pickle, and myself and Ed Thomas, three of us ventured out there in the middle of dead winter with topo maps. And we basically said, if you were going to have a radar base out in this area, where would you put it? Would you, you put, put it, it somewhere accessible, and you put it somewhere tall, high, mountaintop. Sure. We really found the Alvado one by sheer luck. We had pretty much given up. We started about 6 o'clock in the morning. About 12.30, we ended up in a small restaurant in Chama, uh, New Mexico. Waitress looked at us. Well, you guys are kind of dressed kind of rugged, but you don't look like hunters. We said, now we're out here trying to find an old radar base. And she said, oh, get down here to Highway 9. Get down to Highway 9. There's something down there. One of my girlfriends used to date the guy that worked out there. That's pretty much being handed a radar base to you. Well, we went down after lunch. Sure enough, we found it. Spent the rest of the afternoon photographing it with little throwaway box cameras. Got the photos developed. Month later, I was down at Maxwell Air Force Base, and I said, I need to know everything, all the historical reports and files on this radar base. We don't have one there. Hmm. Yes, you do. No, we don't. Here's the pictures. Oh, my God, we must have. And, uh, <laughs> oh, yes. Lovely, we, lovely. Well, in the Air Force's defense, because it had been Atomic Energy Commission, then turned over to the Air Force, there was some confusion as to where and what it was. And once we got past that, uh, Archie DeFonte, who's the historian at uh, Maxwell, looked at it and said, well, you know, that is probably going to be found in the old archives of the Atomic Energy Commission because of its proximity to Los Alamos. I would guess that's what it was built for, and then we found it. They did have some extremely high-powerful radar there that they were uh, experimenting for the Navy with. And I've talked to people that were based there. Cause it's a little bit easier trying to find people that were there in the in '57 than it is trying to find people still alive from '47, '48. You know, I know it's only 10 years, but or nine years, but it's a big difference. Sure. And uh, from time to time, not from time to time, on a regular basis, they had a huge presence of Navy personnel there that were always experimenting with a, a radar that it was a joint venture between Raytheon and GE, two fierce competitors in the radar industry, by the way. Uh, and that was set for out at sea. The ships could go basically try to go beyond the horizon trying to detect metallic objects, meaning enemy ships. That radar was so powerful, we got a manual from it the operating manual, it specifically says do not operate. You know, first of all, the first procedure is use your height finder and range finder to make sure there are no aircraft in the area before you fire this up. Hmm. I gave that to you in layman's terms, but that's basically the, the, the warnings of the startup procedure of this. Use your standard height finder and range finder radar to search out aircraft before this radar is turned on. Hey, you know, we don't have a lot of time left, maybe seven or eight minutes, and I was hoping that maybe we realize that a lot of stuff 
happened here, a lot of permutations, a lot of complexities. And maybe you could spend a few moments before we have to let you go into the ether or wherever you're traveling to, to kind of sum this up. What do you think happened there? And also, how did the government react? Because obviously with Roswell, they came out with four various and sundry explanations. What about Aztec? Well, I guess to sum it up, March 25th, 1948, about 5 o'clock in the morning, the disc was discovered by oil field workers approximately 12 miles northeast of Aztec. Approximately a two-week recovery operation to remove it, with some of the parts we think going to Los Alamos. Whole chapter of that in the book. We spent a lot of years painstakingly going through the records trying to determine if it was a valid case, if we had valid witnesses. 20 years into it now, working on a book, there's a documentary out uh, called Aztec 1948. You can purchase that through UFO TV or through www.aztec1948. Haven't had any of the repercussions, uh, haven't had the Air Force flatter us yet with a book out called Case Closed, the Aztec Incident, like they did for Roswell. Roswell, basically speaking, a radar has kind of kept under the radar of uh, most UFO cases. That documentary on Aztec was done by uh, Paul Kimball, is that correct? Yes, it was. He did a very nice job on it. We helped him. He interviewed me a little bit for the documentary. Paul and I don't agree on a lot of things, but I, I must agree he did a fantastic job on that documentary. It won two EB awards at the UFO Congress uh, Film Festival, and I hear he put a really good one out here recently called The Ten Best Cases. Yeah. yeah. I can't absolutely. wait to see that one. He, uh, he sent me a copy of that one, and um, it, it's very interesting. We've had Paul on the show before, and um, actually, it, it's, kind of, it's, it's fascinating you said you don't necessarily agree with him on a bunch of stuff. Um, Paul and I have actually had our differences in terms of politics. Uh, in terms of UFO research, I think that it's actually very useful to have his voice out there because he is kind of the the balancing voice to the um, the wide-eyed believer set where he is asking hard questions and um, I'm just curious and you might not even want to get into this Scott but when you say you don't agree with him on 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 things could you name one thing that where you two have wildly diverging views I'm just curious I'll be as politically correct as I can he's he's made statements that I have stayed at Scott and Suzanne's house for three days and read every one of his UFO documents. Mm -hmm. Well, we will have been married now, Suzanne and I, October 18th, four years, and as we have rearranged the house in preparation for finishing the book, we still have boxes that my wife has never seen. So he has a, a tad of exaggeration in some of his comments, and I worry about how that spills over into his, into his UFO research. Mm -hmm. All right. That was politically correct enough. He's a good guy, and he has a lot of talent. He just sometimes, we have to rear him a little bit. No, we like him. He's one of the friends of the show. We always like having him on. Well, that said, and, and I'll gladly say this on air, uh, he recently in his blog had some comments about the U.S. invasion of Iraq that I found to be so outrageous, I just actually had to spank him online about it because it was just, <laughs> it was just, it was just ridiculous. And uh, I didn't read that. I, I I don't have a lot of time at work to read a lot of blog sites. Yeah, no, I, I tend to follow his, and 
there were some statements about the uh, the Iraq situation that were were just nonsensical. And you have again, to call I, his really, uncle Stan Friedman and tell him to spank yeah. him for us. <laughs> nah, that's all right. I actually get to see him uh, at the. Uh, I guess by the time this airs, I will have already seen him at the X conference and. Hopefully we'll get to uh, have a good time and not bring up politics, and that'll be fun. There you go. Yeah. Politics, religion, and sports. You know, that's a dangerous thing to bring up. And then UFOs. <laughs> yeah, you're right. The, pa- the paranormal. That's right. Anything with the paranormal is uh, <laughs> that starts that starts things really flowing. Well, no, that's religion. That's the same thing. Man. It can be sometimes. Sure. It is. It is. Anyway. But what do you think? Do you think that that was a spaceship or something over from Aztec? Do you believe that UFOs are spaceships? Okay, that starts another two hours. Yeah, I'll I'll do it in a short synopsis. I firmly believe the object that was recovered 12 miles northeast of Aztec, New Mexico, was an extraterrestrial craft. Based on my research and other people's research that have helped me, I can't say we have a smoking gun. I can't say beyond a shadow of a doubt that in my heart, my gut, the people that we've talked to, it's... That's what I believe happened. Okay, so you basically subscribe to ETH. And the reason I said that is because, as anyone's listened to the PowerCast knows, we talk about other theories, extra-dimensional UFOs. We talk about crypto-terrestrial UFOs, where the craft comes from here, but from maybe another race or something coexisting with ours. But even then, I guess it is alien to us. Essentially, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. It sure is. Tell us one more time if someone needs to check out the things that you've done, the things that you've written. Do you have a blog that we can consult? Uh, Frank Warren's got some articles on there that that he's done on Aztec. He's got a couple with me. Frank Warren Blogspot. Scroll down on the right uh, column. If anybody wants to contact me or buy a documentary, there's a website, www.aztec1948.com. That is a direct link to UFO TV where you can purchase your tape, but also on that website is an email from me. You can just click on and send me an email. I respond to everybody's email every day, unless I'm traveling. Okay, we'll have a link to that at the PowerCast website, so those of you who want to contact Scott, maybe someone out there is still alive or still knows something about this encounter back in 1948 in Aztec, New Mexico. Maybe you could help Scott get more information. And can we hope we're going to see this book before the end of the year? Can we kind of push you off a little faster here? And- my, my wife says if you if you jump on one more airplane to go talk to another witness, we won't have it done. If you're a good boy and stay home, we'll, we'll probably have it out right at the first of the year. I'd like to have it done. Next year's Aztec uh, Symposium, I believe the dates are the 28th of March to the 30th. Well, one thing we'd say about Aztec, at least it hasn't become a tourist trap. No, we've we've taken sort of a different approach. Uh, the library used the Aztec incident as a fundraiser. Hmm. Uh, Leanne Hathcock, the librarian at the Aztec Public Library, on the 50th anniversary of Aztec, started a symposium. The next year, I met Leanne. I jumped in and helped her. That's how I met my wife, by the way. It's really turned into a great thing. Because of the fundraiser, it brought enough awareness that they're able to raise and get grants and bonds to build a new library. And it's the most beautiful library you've ever seen. Well, it has a value instead of just selling books and lectures and having McDonald's with UFOs on them. Hey, Scott, we're out of time, and we want to thank you so much for joining us this week on the PowerCast. Thank you, gentlemen, for having me. Thanks, Scott. 
Thanks. Ladies and gentlemen, I also wanted to remind you that next week on the PowerCast, we'll have the distinct pleasure of talking with two people about the Flatwoods Monster and about and the orders dating back to 1952 where the military was directed to shoot down UFOs. The discussion, of course, will be with Frank Faschino Jr., the author of Shoot Them Down, The Flying Saucer Air Wars of 1952. And you'll also hear from veteran UFO researcher Stanton Friedman coming up next week on the Paracast. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in the Paracast.